This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. You're listening to Afternoons. On today's show, we are just reminding you one more time for the people in the back on the importance of car seat safety when it comes to our little ones. What does the law say? Some of the common attitudes and obstacles that the team from Safety on Board come up against and some practical information too on choosing and buying a car seat. We were in conversation with an inspirational family, little Aurelia and mum Isabel, talking about the impact the donors had on literally changing and saving her life. Plus, solving your insomnia with an unexpected source, TikTok. Could a viral mocktail get you some much-needed Zs and in a psychology hour, turning our attentions to infertility and friendship? We're talking car seat safety this hour, a conversation that often gets my blood boiling, but we are talking about what you need to know, answering your questions on everything from how to buy a good car seat to, of course, what the law says, because the numbers are astounding. An alarming percentage of parents in the UAE do not own proper car seats for their children. That was according to a 2023 survey here in the UAE. So one out of three, 33% of those surveyed, don't own proper child safety restraint systems, although most respondents, 94%, actually understand the protective powers. So what's going wrong? We're joined now by Sophie and Borja, the co-founders of Safety On Board, who are, I hope are equally passionate about this as me. Great to have you both in the studio. Um, Sophie, let's start with you. And you're here as parents as well as professionals in this space. What, when you arrived in the UAE six years ago, started to raise some red flags or indeed realise that there was work to be done here in particular? First of all, thank you so much, Helen, for inviting us to be here. My pleasure. Thank you. So we basically arrived over here from Spain six years ago. And when we arrived to UAE, it was so exciting to be here. And But at the same time, we noticed that the way how the kids are riding over in the cars was raining them. You have kids riding out of the window saying hello to you, coming up to the ceiling. You have even kids being holded over in the laps of the, of the, of the adults. So it's kind of really something which is really shocking as a parent of two uh, seeing that because we are coming over from Spain where in a country is pretty developed in terms of this topic where you can see rear facing car seats and the Swedish plus tested are the norm mm. which is going on over there and um, so by also at the same time we also um, we brought the car seats when we were located back from Spain to come over here um, our daughter's car seats Sofia th- together with us and sooner or later, we realized that we got two cars. We have my husband's car and my car, and we need to change and swap in the yeah, car seats, right? need to go shopping. Yeah, from one car to another car, we realized that, oh, my gosh, I just can't find a high-quality car seat and also car seats which passed over the Swedish plus test because for us, Swedish plus test is kind of like a golden symbol for mm-hmm. the parents in Europe to buy because it gives them really a peace of mind. So that so, was a big shock. So two shocking. issues then, at- attitude towards car seat safety, but also availability as well. I mentioned a few stats there, Borja. I wondered if you had any more numbers that, you know, will start to get the point across about just how important this is. What is happening or indeed not happening when it comes to car seats and seatbelt safety with children in particular? So actually we came with, uh, with information that uh, 60% of the children death 
uh, that happens in the country happens while they are driving on a car. So, sorry, let me just get my head around this. 60% of children who lose their lives in the UAE is in road traffic incidents. Indeed, indeed. While we as parents, we believe that our child are on risk when they are nearby the pool mm. in the beach. But actually, the highest risk for a children is while we are driving, probably commuting Dubai, Abu Dhabi. We know here we drive high-powered engine cars, while back home we drive slower cars, electric cars. So here, of course, the game and the risk for the children, it gets just multiplied. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk next about what the law says, because we have seen law changes, um, and, and rightly so, when it comes to fines towards penalties. But also, we really want to communicate a bit of clarity here, just so everybody knows exactly what the expectations are and why. Official figures showing that road traffic accidents accounted for 64% of child deaths over the last 10 years here in the UAE. Joining us from Safety On Board, we've got Sophie and Borja, who are on a mission to get those numbers down. And education being such an important part, and that's you know why we're here today. We'd love to help you out with any questions you might have on this. Um, so I wanted to ask you, Sophie, what does the law say when it comes to car seats, starting with, and maybe we can get onto seat belts as well. So children in car seats... What does the law say? Yeah. So in 2017, 1st of July, so UAE has implemented a car seat law which states that children which is under the age of, age of four is mandatory for them to use the right car seats for their age. And also has been stating about a child which is under the age of 10 and below 1.45 meters, they should not be allowed to sit it over in the co-pilot seat. So in, in the front, you have to be 10 years old? And 145 centimetres. Correct. Can I come back to the car seats for, mm-hmm. for children? Um, because we're thinking everything from like newborn up to four. So, you know, yeah. there's a lot of kind of variation in that. Correct. Um, so when it comes to choosing a good car seat, we've actually had a message here asking about uh, Katerina saying, my three-year-old is a real escape artist. You know, what should I be looking for uh, to stop them getting out? So c- mm-hmm. what, what should we be looking for? And um, we don't necessarily need to talk about brands, but I guess to do with you know, safety standards, about age and stage. Mm -hmm. So in terms of if I would adjust this into two points, the first thing she had mentioned about the child would love to escape out from the harness, right? So to address part of this point, I would say that the first point I would advise is in terms of for her to have a quick look in terms of where the shoulder straps is being placed over. If you would have a look at the shoulder strap, typically if it's below of the child or above the child, it's very easy actually for the child to actually get the the arms out of the harness. So it could be a fitting problem. Correct. And the second point or so would be in terms of the, the tightness of the harness. So to confirm if the harness is tight enough or not, so it's very easy. You can do a pinch test to try with your two fingers to try to pinch the webbings. Are you able to pinch out any of the webbings out? If yes, it means the harness is not tight enough, tight again. So in general, if the harness is snug and tight and and the shoulder harness is being placed over at the right position based on both two. Majority of the cases, the child should not be able to get the arms out of the harness. Okay. What about rear-facing um, uh, car seats, Borja? Can, you know, we've seen so many studies on just how much, um, you know, the implication on safety. Why is that? And is there an age that you can use those rear-seating, rear-facing seats up to, rather? So basically, we recommend children to ride only rear-facing, minimum until the age of four. 
Now, in terms of movements and dynamics, if the children goes in a forward-facing car seat, the stress of the impact goes into the neck. And we, the studies shown that the children cannot withdraw um, maximum of 130 kilo in the neck. That's why when it comes to rear-facing, is not the children's neck, is actually the car seat mm -hmm. that is absorbing all those forces. At the same time, the forces are being um, expanded around the car seat and not focused on the children's neck and spine. So the forces are basically spread around the seat itself rather than Indeed. concentrate. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Well, it's lots of messages on this, right? We're going to try and help out as many people as possible. Um, message here, no name saying, don't get me started. Um, I've, I've had a, I, I shared a list of what I consider to be baby essentials in response to a mum's post in Abu Dhabi. He said, we never had a Moses basket, don't to the point. A woman replied to me saying, a Moses basket is perfect for the first three months of a newborn's life and you shouldn't use a car seat for journeys and rather lay them flat in a Moses basket which gets held or seat belted. Even when I replied to say it's illegal and extremely dangerous, um, car seats are designed specifically to support newborns. She came back saying she doesn't think it's illegal here. She did it and advises others to do so. It's ignorance at best and sadly it's the kids that suffer. And I think it does come back to an education thing. You know, I don't know what the answer is. Well, I do know what the answer is. I think we need to be shocking people, to be honest. I think there need to be, you know, big campaigns all over because with the best will in the world... I hope that people listening to Dubai I 103.8 know a lot of this. I just you know, feel like we need to be doing so much to reach those that haven't had that, you know, access to that information before. Um, can we talk a little bit about some of the common misconceptions, Sophie? You know, we're talking there about rear facing. Mm -hmm. And I've seen this in, in groups as well saying, oh, my child's got long legs. So that doesn't work yeah. for us. Or, um, you know, I want to be able to make eye contact with my kid and all that kind of stuff. What are some of the mm -hmm. attitudes or or misconceptions that you've come up against when you're going into education sessions? Mm -hmm. I think the most common misconceptions in terms of rear-facing courses, the first number one would be parents you need talking about, oh, Sophie, my child leg, they are so long to sit over in a rear-facing courses. They won't be comfortable to be over there. So I would give a quick example to make it a bit more simple to understand this. So let's talk about if, as a doubt, we sit over in a bar counter with a bar stool without a foot rest. So your legs basically are dangling actually in the air, right? So which, after some time, you will feel like, mm, my legs are uncomfortable. I need somewhere where I can rest my leg on, right? That's for a doubt that happens. Whereby as, a doubt, as kids... Is something which is working exactly the same. So a forward-facing child, their legs will be dangling in the air, whereby if the child is sitting over in rear-facing, so their legs are rest over on the vehicle seats. And another one point we need to take into consideration, the children's legs, they're very flexible. They're not like adults. You will see children, they're crossing <laughs> their legs, sitting over on the Contorting floors. Contorting. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So they are really very flexible. So they can bend their legs, cross their legs. They find their comfortable spot where to put their legs on. So in terms of long legs wise, I would say that rear facing cars is actually giving much more comfort. Mm -hmm. Right. To the text line we go. A message here saying, it's worse in Abu Dhabi. I left the hospital with a couple who put the car seat in the trunk 
while the wife sat in the front seat with the new baby on her lap. Uh, Wassam's asking how you can report people who haven't got kids in car seats or using seatbelts. We're going to come back to that after half past. Um, and Lee, just to come back to our point there about choosing, um, saying what age do they need to be in booster seats or is that done until height? We need to work out logistics for family visiting with older kids. So booster seats, um, what age or stage would that be, Boha? So booster seats will go after the weight of 36 kilo. So that comes around seven plus years. Now, our children need to be mature enough to be in a booster seat because, you know, they will move around, they will play around, and it's not as comfortable as a rear-facing. We know the newest technologies allow rear-facing up to uh, a height of, sorry, a weight of 36 kilo or a height of 125. So after that, the only option that we have is a forward-facing. So with the, with the booster in particular, so this is the one that hasn't got the kind of the, the upper segment, and I'm asking this because my daughter's about to turn nine, she's on the mm. booster now, is there um, any benefit f- for Isofix versus, you know, it just being strapped in? Mm. What about guidelines there? So if installed properly, Isofix and seatbelt carries the same level of safety. Now, the good thing is Isofix is quite straightforward and there is less chances of making a mistake as a parent, while the seatbelt is a little more complex and you want to make sure that the belts are uh, tied properly. Okay. Tell me, Sophie. So in terms of the booster seats, something I would love to add on is about... Um, so booster seats actually plays a bigger role because we are going to graduating our child from a five-point harness to a three-point using the adult three-point seat belt. That means that we would require a child to be mature enough. So we would say the majority of the child, they are not mature enough to ride a booster, high-back booster seats until they are roughly about five years mm-hmm. old. Of course, there's minimal requirements you will see in the market. The high-back booster seats, you will have the height requirements if you're 100 centimeter or 15 kg. Um, you will typically find a child which is maybe... For example, a child which is in the higher percentile, maybe a three-years-old child or three years and a half, the child is already hitting around 100 centimeter or 15 kg. Oh, is the child ready for high-back booster seats? But typically, a child of under five years old will find out still they are not mature enough to use it over. You will see that they will be playing over the giraffe to, to grab object over, playing over with the seat belt, trying to unbuckle them itself. So it really requires a child to be seat still in high-back booster seats. Makes sense. Okay, lots to consider. Um, we've got Sophie and Borja with us today, the co-founder of Safety On Board. We've had a question, actually, and I don't know if these guys can help in it, but we'll see what if we can, about what about on school buses? What are the rules about, say, about seat belts there? Um, well, that's from Marco. Uh, we've had a message, as I said, from Wassim about reporting kids. Um, and oh, a really good point, actually, from Selma. Is there any law on having front-facing car seats in the front passenger seat? I don't know about laws, but I'm sure we're going to be talking about safety. Hot topics all the way through the afternoon and talking car seat safety now. Sophie and Boha, the co-founders of Safety On Board, on hand to answer my questions, but truthfully, most importantly, yours, offering some clarification on what the law says um, and also some of the misconceptions they're hearing from parents when it comes to educating on car seat and seat belt safety. Um, Sophie, what are some of the common attitudes, maybe the issues that parents are coming to you with you? You know, having, having confronted them with the stats, with the undeniable data about how much safer it is for our children to be protected with car seats, what are some of the... but this is the problem we have. What are you hearing? Mm-hmm. 
So one of the key things I had heard many parents in terms of talking about rare facings only for newborn baby. So newborn or the infants. So typically they get really shocked. Oh, what? You're six years old is still chopping over in a rare facing car seat. So I think there is a huge big misconception with the parents in terms of the rare facing. And we had already talked about it in terms of this topic, which is earlier in terms of rear facing indeed is the safest way for the children to travel. Therefore, we do recommend parents really keeping their children for rear facing for the longer the better. What about the attitude about not using car seats at all? What, what are some of the reasons? I don't want to say excuses, but I actually do mean excuses. What are some of the excuses you're hearing from parents about not putting their kids in car seats? Mm-hmm. Usually the parents will tell us, Helen, usually the parents will tell us, my children, they don't like the car seats. My children is grumpy, is naughty, because he doesn't like the car seats. We all know, we all went through this parenthood uh, journey, right? And we didn't know how to change the nappies. We didn't know how to, in which language to speak to our children. So we didn't know about safety. Now, a children's, if he doesn't like the car seat, there could be two reasons. Whether the car seat, regardless if it's going forward facing or rear facing, is not suitable to their weight and height. So they feel very narrow, in their, in their seat. The second one, as Sophie mentioned, is the straps. Mm-hmm. If the straps are not adjusted to the right height. So this is where parents, we always recommend them. First, check these two. Check which kind of car seat you have. Which safety certification do you have? Is that model too small for your children or even t- too big? In our children's, the moment we put them in the rear-facing car seat, they just sleep, <laughs> which we have challenged to wake them up. Well, I've had the opposite when my kids were where they were screaming their heads off. And I I can say there are very few more stressful places than being trapped in a car with a screaming baby. So I I understand the stress that having a crying baby or a tantruming toddler can, can have, especially when you're driving and you're trying to concentrate. One thing I've heard time and time again is as exactly as you say, they don't like it. What I would say is that tough like, honestly, as parents, it's not our job to be liked or be popular with our children the whole time. Safety is the absolute priority. It really is. I'm going to try and get through as many questions as, as we can on this. Um, we've had a message from Lee saying, um, oh, no, sorry, Marco. Um, Do you know the rules on seatbelts in the yellow school buses? We're looking at school bus for journey home for our three-year-old from September. We prefer to provide our own car seat, but need to know what belts or isofix they have. Um, I think it's the three-point seatbelt, Sophie. Is that right? So majority of the school buses come over with the three-point seat belts. Some of the buses you might find only the lap belt only. And also school buses are being designed for for preschoolers. They would require a car seat in order to travel with to be safe. However, one thing in, in terms of the school bus, which we were just talking about, is that it is indeed is one of the safest transportation way. Um, due to the way how it's been designed mm. in terms of safety-wise, the size. There are many dif- different kind of safety designs and features which is featured over in your school bus compared with the private cars, which we do have. But definitely in terms of for three years old, I would say that in terms of school bus, it's also very much compacted from the seats, which is in front of you, and then the, the space which you really have in terms of installing your car seats, which is over there. So I would recommend to look over for a car seat which is which can come over with seatbelt installation, a bit more compacted ones. Mm-hmm. If can allows if that car seat can allow you to rear facing, uh, that would be even much more better as well. Um, Marco, what we had our 
FS1 kids in um, on the school bus from from the beginning and they were in car seats as well and they actually let us go onto the bus and install the car seat ourselves rather than just handing it over the driver so for that peace of mind ask for that uh, Laura says it still amazes me how people think they're invincible the same applies for using a phone while driving I see it every day um and my goodness we've had it we've had a lot of messages and we'll try and get through them as we can uh, Wassam saying how can you report people who don't have kids in car seats or using seat belts as we said earlier 400 dirham fine my husband has been known to take photos of them to upload to the police app wind down his window and tell people they're terrible parents at the traffic lights um so i think through the police app is is uh, is is the the thing to do um i wanted to ask you if you could wave a magic wand, and I'm not just talking about the UAE, but in, in, indeed all areas when it comes to car seat safety, what do you think needs to change, whether it's a attitude or a practical that you would love to see to, to bring the number of fatalities down? I really believe, Helen, the government with the new laws is doing something wonderful. But again, like every new journey, it comes from us, from parents. Um, hospitals plays a major role when it comes to having newborns being discharged from the hospital. But we can see over the past the past three years we have been in this business, we can see a really good um, change Seeing on parents. Yeah, good. we really see that. One last question that's just come in um, saying, is it safe to buy car seats secondhand? That's a really good question. Sophie, this is something you obviously, in terms of the distribution um, arm of what you guys do, um, of safety on board, um, you don't know if that car seat's been in an accident, presumably. Absolutely. So this is one of the key concerns in terms of, if you would think about it in terms of buying secondhand car seats from a market, the history is unknown. You're not so sure that if the car seats has been gone through in a, in, in a collision or not, if it is, it's not safe mm-hmm. to use anymore. So this is one of the key things. I would only recommend it to use over secondhand car seats if the car seats coming over from a family member based on you would have the car seats is not expired. Mm-hmm. And the second point, if all the inserts and cushions are coming over along with the car seats and the car seats is everything's ready, I mean, they're completely, there's nothing which is broken. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you've got that transparency of its its, its origin story. Um, Sophie Boha, thank you so much for coming in. Um, for anyone that wants to find out more about safety on board, and you are going into schools and nurseries and, you know, doing that education piece as well as providing car seats and filling that gap that you identified when you first moved over. Boha, what's the best way of getting in touch with you guys? For us, we are in all major social medias. We have a website and what we do we offer education for free. We answer the questions for free. So we really encourage all the parents, just send us a message, a WhatsApp, an email, and then. Tell you what, I'll make it even easier. Um, if you want to send me the word safe, I will send you the links. So you can contact the guys. Thank you so much for your time. A much needed reminder, as I said, I'm hoping everyone listening today is doing doing everything they should for the safety of their children. But I think it's really important if just to keep on keep on spreading the word. Thank you so much. We love introducing you to inspirational people and not one but two in the studio today. We've got mum Isabel, an 11-year-old Aurelia, with an autoimmune disorder diagnosed when she was very, very small. She now has a big dream to spread positivity, raise money and, yeah, some good vibes too. Aurelia, how are you today? 
I'm good. I'm so happy you're here. We're going to be hearing a little bit about your story and your mission. But I want to start with Mum Isabel, about where this story began. Isabel, tell us a little bit about when Aurelia was born. Um, So this story starts in Dubai in September of 2012. And after a really picture show of pregnancy where I was very relaxed and healthy. Um, Aurelia was born perfectly. And then unfortunately, within hours, um, started showing signs of bleeding and just turned very poorly very quickly. And um, ended up in the NICU on the first night. And then on day 19 was medivac to Germany, which (sighs) is my, my home country. And sorry, I need to find out what was being said in those 19 days. Were you were you told if there was a condition or what, oh, we ha- we, what, what was unfolding? We heard, a, we heard a lot of things, but I think, um, and in fairness, in hindsight, we still don't have an official diagnosis. So um, uh, the doctors were quite overwhelmed with her and she was uh, consuming blood at a, at a flabbergasting speed, really. So everyone was quite overwhelmed and we eventually got transferred to um, Tawam Hospital in Al Ain and then the decision was taken that she would have to travel. And... Um, Quite early on, the possibility of a bone marrow transplant or a stem cell transplant was mentioned, and we were in disbelief at this stage. Um, but that's what eventually happened when Aurelia was five months old. Tell us then about those really early days when there must have been, I mean, my goodness, the hormones and the, the exhaustion of just having given birth to a baby is overwhelming itself. And then the confusion that must have been going on around it. What was it like at that time as well? Um, it, it was very much survival mode in the in the early days. And then, um, you know, there was also the, the lack of a support network because like most expatriates here, you know, there's no family members. Um, there's the friends you have, they have their own families to look after. So, and there was a lot of trying to fix things um, and obviously being out of our depth and just organizing the medivac, these things were overwhelming. And then like many children who are born here um, with congenital disorders, there was the big question of uh, will insurance actually pay? What will they pay for? Um, So it was a lot of survival mode. Um, And then tell us about Germany. What what unfolded there? Well, we arrived and and pretty much thought this would be a quick fix and thought we'd be back home in in two weeks, and it actually took uh, close to two years. So Aurelia was in hospital pretty much the entire first year and then another close to five months in the second year. And we came back to Dubai just after her second birthday. Um, But I think what carried us through is that, that we went into the gratitude mode quite early on. And I think I have my husband to thank for that because he is the born Mr. Positivity. And um, which is which is amazing at any stage in life, but in those really tough moments yeah. when and and, and that's, that's not about being strong or ignorant to what's going on around you, but to be looking for the good, looking for the positive. Yeah, and he he did really carry us through because he's uh, he's very everything will be fine in his mindset, um, and everything was fine actually, much really? better than fine. You're so he in, was very right here in the studio now. Really, can would you mind? You said you mentioned there. You haven't had an official diagnosis, but, you know, years in hospital. Aurelia, can I ask you a strange question? Yes. What's your first memory? What's the first thing you remember? I don't remember much because I was very little. Mm -hmm. But I don't really know, but I think I still remember some of my toys from that back then. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? And now you're here, you know... 11 years old and you've got your house captain badge on and your dad was absolutely right you know but it's been it's been a long hard journey to get to this point and we're going to be hearing a little bit next about the mission that you are on to spread some awareness around 
well, blood donations and transplants and really hoping to make it easier for families in the future. We've got Isabel and Aurelia in the studio today. We're talking about people that they've met along the way and how they as a family are on a mission to make the world a better place. In conversation now with a really inspirational family and some lovely messages coming on saying how important to have gratitude and be positive even in the toughest moments. We've got 11-year-old Aurelia in the studio and mum Isabel who had a very tough start in life with years of treatment in hospital and now happy, healthy Dubai student. Um, it has been a long road though and I wanted to ask you Isabel about some of the treatments that Aurelia's had over the years if you wouldn't mind sharing. Um, so... Oh, there's a whole range of it. But um, essentially what happens before a a stem cell transplant is that the children receive a very high dose chemotherapy that essentially wipes out the entire immune system and their bone marrow so that the new cells can find a home. Mm. Um, She was on high dose steroids for a long time. Um, Just the aftercare of a stem cell transplant is a minimum of a year of immune suppressants, antibiotics, antiviral drugs, antifungal drugs. So um, we had a, a big home pharmacy set up really. But we were incredibly fortunate because um, Aurelia and the stem cell database had a total of three potential matches instantly. Um, so that, that is miraculous and a really big blessing and one of the things you want to advocate for most. Um, so she didn't have any rejection after her transplant because she had such a, such a good match. And um, her donor, Chris, who has become a really good, good friend, uh, father, brother to us, um, uh, his cells made sure that, that she recovered actually very nicely after, and that's why she is so healthy and, today. And, you know, unfortunately, you met and lost people along the way who haven't, haven't been so lucky. Um, so tell us a little bit about, um, about your, your goals, Aurelia. You've already raised nearly 7,000 dirhams, and you're going to be making a donation of a different kind. You're growing your hair, is that right? Yes. Tell us why that is and who it's for. So I am. Um, I was donating to the Al Jalila Foundation that helps displaced children, children that have troubles and that are really sick, mm-hmm. just like I was. And I want to advocate for donating blood. So children out of mixed backgrounds, out of different races, all kind of children get to find a donor because, unfortunately, many children don't. And that stem cell registry, you know, to have that, you know, somewhere like the UAE, what impact do you think that would have on families, Isabel? I actually think it would be a treasure trough um, because, the, unfortunately, the stem cell registries uh, globally, whereas they, they're growing and there's great numbers, um, they're not really representative of our global population. So um, if you have a European background, um, your chances of finding an unrelated donor are somewhere between 70 and 80 percent. Um, but that goes down dramatically. So someone of um, of African-American background, for example, will only have a 20% chance of finding a donor. And it is particularly critical for uh, families of mixed ethnicities uh, whose children have almost zero chances of finding a donor unless there is a related sibling. And I really think that, that Dubai was our whole glorious multicultural um, population could, could really do a lot of good and find a lot of donors for people globally. Absolutely. Now... Back in 2021, you read about the Little Princess Trust and you're wearing a pin for them now and you were on a bit of a mission to grow your hair and cut your hair on your transplant anniversary and you're growing your hair again for them, is that right? Yes. 
What an amazing thing to do. I mean, when we think about, you know, just being selfless, it's just, it's a beautiful thing to do, really. As I said, you are raising money to help children like yourself. Um, tell us a little bit about Chris. Um, have you, you've met Chris over the years. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you said thank you to him many, many times. But for everyone listening today, you know, how has he changed and saved your life, Aurelia? I had a bone marrow transplant 11 years ago and my family and I are really grateful that we managed to get a donor. He's a really wonderful person and I am really, really grateful that he's my donor. Oh, so shout out to Chris. Where is Chris now? Um, he's in Germany. He came for a visit last September actually with an entire family. So we had a lovely time showing them Dubai and our home here. And um, he's uh, a soldier and this is how he registered, actually, because they donate blood very frequently and they just signed them up to the registry. And he's been uh, actively deployed uh, twice. And his wife uh, told us that for him also it was really life-affirming to, to save a life. It's really the ultimate gift that you can give to anyone. And he didn't only save her, he saved a whole family. Oh, my gosh, I just got goosebumps. What an amazing guy. And how incredible for you to have... Yes. to have found him. So and it, she looks like the third child when you really? see Aurelia with, the other, with oh, his two children. They could easily kidnap her. She, she, <laughs> she fits right in. Can I ask lastly about the blood donation in terms of things that we can do in the UAE now for the good of you know, children, but actually people of all ages? What can we do, Isabel? Um, I think, and, and I think it's particularly important at the moment because obviously the state the world is in at the moment makes us feel very powerless very often mm -hmm. and I really think going out and, and helping and volunteering is the ultimate tool for us to regain a little bit of control and power because we can't fix global affairs but we can change things on a small scale and Aurelia had over 50 liters of blood donations. It's very hard to believe but her, her disease was that aggressively consuming so that's around seven adults of blood and um, and it's a scarce resource. It can't be artificially produced. And it actually has tremendous health benefits to donate blood. So we, we do encourage. And if you're scared of needles, you can encourage people back home to um, to register. So there's a lot that everybody can do on, on their small little scale. And it just gives us a little bit of power back. Thank you both so, so much, Aurelia. I mean, for, for your work you're doing in terms of spreading awareness, for you giving the gift of your hair to the little princess for us, it's just, it's just beautiful. You, I can tell by the look in your eye, probably not the last time you're going to be in the spotlight. And you are, as I said, raising for Al Jalila Foundation. Thank you for your time. And how is your health today? How are you feeling now? I'm feeling really, really good. I'm so pleased. And mum, you must be so, so proud. What a thing you've been through. But my goodness, as you said, the, the power, and it, I'm not saying this lightly about the power of positivity, but the impact it can have on a family can be devastating. It sounds like you've pulled together so, so beautifully and turned this into something really, really special. Again, there's a lot of gratitude. And, you know, again, looking now at, um, you know, those families that do not have access to medical care, particularly during the conflict in Gaza, that have nowhere to go. Um, that to us is just heartbreaking. So even though, you know, it's been hard at times, we are so incredibly fortunate because we were lucky to have the access to medical care, to, to find the donor and have this best possible outcome and have a little activist on hand, which is well, brilliant. Well, we need more of those. Aurelia Isbell, thank you so much for your time. Wishing you a happy and healthy 2024 thank and you beyond. So much. Thank you.
Sleep Consultant Julie Mallon from Nurture to Sleep is in studio. We might be solving insomnia with a very unexpected source, TikTok, which seems counterproductive because it can often be the source of insomnia because of the endless scrolling. But someone thinks they might have come up with a solution. Julie Mallon, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. You're fresh off the back of your sleep retreat, uh, which sounds like it was quite literally life-changing for an awful lot of people that joined you on that. Um, will there be another sleep retreat in the future? Yes, we have one planned already for the end of April. Mm. So 27th, 28th. Who's your target? Um Anyone who is really struggling with their sleep and wants to make changes, the whole part of the sleep retreat is genuinely to facilitate, but also to take tools away that they can use in their home every single day. So taking the pressure off sleep, that's mm. the first thing. Well, that's interesting because I'm sure a lot of people, if you have got ongoing insomnia, it becomes a, a mental challenge of like the pressure you must put on yourself to like you know tonight tonight's going to be a good night's sleep that this it must build up and the anxiety can't help it i mean very definitely about in terms of anxiety and the less sleep we get of course more anxiety we're experiencing so as we said it's just about looking to see what is going to help you but it's also about personalizing your sleep as opposed to perfectionizing your sleep that's very different go on tell us more about that So what would work for me that improves my sleep will not work for you. So it's about recognizing the different tools that there are, exploring do they work for you, and then use them regardless of what anybody else is using. But equally, remember that they're not going to work all the time. So we have to go back and review and reflect back and think, okay, why did that? So it's asking the why. That why is so important. I'm reading and hearing so much more about sleep and I don't know if it's because I'm tuned into it because I love having conversations with you and I find it a really interesting topic but I feel like the the world is, and please excuse the pun, waking up to the importance of sleep as a pillar of wellness. Is that something you're recognising too? I am. And if we look at, for example, we've just had an event recently where they were looking at how the UAE was viewing sleep. Now this for me was so exciting because if we're looking at trends, more and more people are looking for sleep retreats, looking for wellness. They also have recognised that three percent, sixty-three percent of um, travellers from the UAE, when they go away, their sleep quality improves. So they're being aware of the improvement in their sleep quality. Mm-hmm. We know that you know one of the other latest studies around the UAE is that. Um, UAE residents are putting sleep above, in terms of choices, above um, winter holidays. 24% is looking for sleep related sleep centric holidays mm-hmm. whereas 21% is your um, your winter holidays and even going to um, museums. Wow. Yeah. So that's really interesting. I think we are I mean we've had this conversation before about the impact you know, the sleep has on you know your mood, your ability to cope with things, even your food choices the next day. So, which is why I'm not surprised that on TikTok, the the hashtag sleepy girl mocktail has racked up 48 million views. Um, It's a simple recipe. And I want to talk to you about the impact of food and, you know, drink, liquids, supplements on our sleep. So the mocktail recipe is a tablespoon of magnesium powder, tart cherry juice, flavoured sparkling water and ice. It was created by, and trust me, I'm cringing as I say this, an American wellness influencer. But I'm curious, Julie Marlin, as a sleep consultant, do you think there's much, much science in this mocktail? 
That is, there's very definitely science in the mocktail. If you look at magnesium, for example, magnesium is responsible for over 300 biochemical reactions in our body. Some, and it's actually somewhere between three and 600. So magnesium is a sleep, well, it's known as a sleep mineral, and it is so important for our overall health. So it's not just for sleep, but for everything, whether it's our mood. If, if we are low in melatonin, uh, sorry, low in magnesium, we are then going to be low in our mood. Cardiovascular issues, all of these things are down to being low in magnesium. So it, is, it really is a super mineral, and it's one of the safest supplements to take. How many people do you think are deficient in magnesium? And, you know, how, how can we get it from our diet naturally? Well, the problem with getting it from our diet, we used to be able to get it from our diet. But now the way that, you know, the large agricultural companies are working, that the magnesium and the zinc, they are being lost within the food. Mm. And also something like here in Dubai, our food is being picked before it's ripe because it's being brought into Dubai. Therefore, it's not absorbing all these essential units. Uh, minerals it's just not present anymore so the vast majority of people could benefit from taking yes some. now yep. there are two types of magnesium one might help with relaxation oh, no, no, no. there's many well, many i think about kind of two main ones one is can have a, a laxative effect and one can have a relaxation effect so which one are we looking for to maximize our sleep julie but even with magnesium citrate which is the one that you're talking about has that laxative effect we can still use it in order to benefit our sleep so how you would use it would be that you would get a powdered version because we want to know whether we are sensitive to it, the different magnesiums or not. So you get a powdered version and you'd make up, say, a jug of um, the magnesium drink throughout the day. And because you're taking it throughout the day, it's not bombarding your system. So you don't get that same laxative effect. Uh. So there's generally ways around it. But if we're looking at the best ones for sleep, magnesium glycinate or bisconate that's really what is going to help with our sleep. What about dosage? Are there any numbers that can be uh, looked for when we're probably going on iHerb (laughs) this evening? So somewhere between four and 500 milligrams of the magnesium. But again, it's when we're taking it and how we're taking, but also paying attention to us. Because again, we all, just like caffeine, for example, we have slow metabolizers of caffeine and we have fast metabolizers of caffeine. Mm -hmm. So it's just about seeing how it's impacting you and also recognising it's not going to work immediately. Julie Mallon with us today, sleep consultant from Nurture to Sleep. We're talking about the Sleepy Girl Mockdale. It's racked up 48 million views on TikTok. It has got that magnesium powder we've been talking about. It's also got tart cherry juice. What's the science behind that? There's quite a lot of tart, uh, quite a lot of science behind it, actually, in that we know that cherries is one of the few, few foods that actually contain melatonin and that also contains magnesium. So it it can really help. So what would be much better is that you have um, fresh cherries. The whole food. The whole food as opposed to cherry juice. Because the other thing is we don't always know the level of sugar in that tart cherry juice in mm. which we're almost counteracting wanting to take it to support our sleep. Because if we have too much sugar before we go to sleep, then that will cause you know a real drop, a real crash in our glucose which will then impact the quality of our sleep. So what other wonder foods can help, um, kind of help us get a good night's sleep? And crucially, timings of eating. What do we need to know, Julie Mullen? So timings of eating. This is really, really important, particularly at the minute where we are seeing a lot of intermittent fasting. Now, the problem that that can lead to is going to sleep hungry. 
if you go to sleep hungry, then you're not going to get that sleep. So you're actually not getting the benefit of the intermittent fasting. So one of the things that you can do, which is really, really good for sleep, you can take one teaspoon of honey because it's a carbohydrate. And what that will do, it will stabilize your blood sugar then overnight. Now to do something even better, if you can, and I know it tastes not quite so great, but one teaspoon of honey with one teaspoon of pink Himalayan salt, again, because of the magnesium. Interesting. It's a really good hack for sleeping. I was just listening to the fitness scientist of Whoop um, on a podcast recently, and she was talking about basically trying to not eat too close to bedtime because what you want is your body to be in that, you know, not not thinking about anything else. You know, it wants, yeah. it wants to be resting and, and literally digesting, not having to really fight your body if you've had a huge meal half an hour before you've gone to bed. Are there any guidelines in terms of... Oh, there are. Uh, And they're really quite clear. But again, it's about how you digest, what your metabolic rate is. So the guidelines are that we stop eating approximately two to three hours before we actually sleep. Now, the reason that, you know, the guidelines are there is so that we actually maintain a cool body temperature. Because if you're going to bed on a heavy meal, your core body temperature is ramped up. And then the signals to that melatonin is completely distorted because the cortisol level is raised. And it's almost fighting against the melatonin. So two to three hours before you go to sleep. Now, again, it depends on the content of what you're eating. So if you're going to have, you know, a high carb and you've got pasta and rice, it needs to be definitely three hours um, before. Whereas if you've had some grilled vegetables, some grilled fish, then that can be two hours. Makes sense. Message here saying, um, are Epsom salt bath or magnesium oil a good way to absorb magnesium? A great way. Now, if you're having a bath, if you were to have a bath as opposed to a capsule, it is five times more effective to soak in a bath of magnesium with Epsom salts or magnesium flakes for 15 minutes. It's five times more effective than taking the capsule because our skin is the largest organ in the body and therefore its absorption is so much greater and it doesn't have to be broken down now again going back to you know some people are sensitive to the magnesium citrate foot soak you that is a really good way of accessing the magnesium through to the liver to help with your sleep got any questions for Julie Mallon, you're going to have to be quick. Um, I wanted to ask you about seasonality in sleep. And I know it's a little bit different when the weather's so beautiful here in, in you know, January in Dubai. But do you feel like as humans, we have got a bit of a natural hibernation in winter and an ebb and flow throughout the year? We very definitely do. And that's why something like jet lag can have such a big impact. Because from an evolutionary perspective, we are able to make that shift throughout the seasons and not have it have such a negative impact on our sleep Mm -hmm. so seasonality definitely but now the other thing that is really causing such resistance within all of us is light we are so dark starved and that's why one of the things that is really really helpful is a mask a sleep mask to make sure that we don't have that light so can you see how it's it's never just one single component so it's not that mocktail Mm -hmm. it's not this it's really looking to see how your sleep health, how, what improvements you can make. To the text line we go. Um, one message here saying, hello ladies, great sleeping tips. I want to, I measure my sleep with my Fitbit. Is it accurate? Um, it shows seven hours sleep, but my sleep is always one hour, often below. How can I improve my deep sleep? That's from Ella. 
the trackers are really helpful just for showing you trends. That's all. So it's not telling you anything about your deep sleep. The only thing that will tell you about a deep sleep is a polysonography where you go into the, and you have stay overnight. That's the only thing. So use it to look for trends, but that's all. Mm-hmm. And also, if you find that it's creating anxiety, take a break from it. That's what I did, Ella. I was yes. tracking mine and I'd wake up in the morning and go, I feel fine. And then my Fitbit would tell me I'd had like basically five yeah. hours of rubbish sleep and then that would make me feel rubbish for the rest of the day. Mm. Um, a message here saying, um, <laughs> I love this, I'm not sure who this is from, it just says, um, Ed Sheeran family here, any help getting kids over a late night? <laughs> oh, I can <laughs> the, definitely relate to 3 that. 3am bedtime for little ones, not the dream, so to speak. So whether it is jet lag or, you know, what a sleepover, which wrecks kids, or Ed Sheeran, um, getting kids back into a good sleep routine. First and foremost, If you know that you've got a late night coming up or if you know you've got a week away or you've got some big activity, build up their sleep bank. That's the first thing. The more rested they are, the better the body can cope with less sleep. And then just again, be really celebrate being at the concert, which I was at and had the most amazing time with my two daughters. It was so incredible. Um, That was far more important. That memory making time with them. And my body was going to make up for it. And I would make sure that the next night I would be off my screen. I would look at my food. So there's definitely things that we can do to get things back. But just just relax around it and enjoy. Quite right. Um, just lastly, come, to come back, we're talking there about tart cherry juice, about magnesium, any other foods we'll be sh- you know, filling our fridge with in 2024, Julie? Uh, smoke. Uh, sorry, salmon. Salmon is such a good one for sleep because it, the omega, not only does it contain the omega-3, but it also contains tryptophan, which boosts our serotonin, which is a really important building block for sleep. Um, yogurt, but full-fat Greek yogurt, because that reaches cellular level far more efficiently. efficiently. Um, turkey, of course. Turkey contains tryptophan. That's where we have that little Christmas is. afternoon nap. But kiwi, another really good hack to kiwi before bed because it contains melatonin um, and it contains the vitamin C and it's less acidic. So then it's not going to disrupt your digestive system. Kiwi's a great one for sleep. Julia Malden, we've been asking people for their two-word Tuesdays and both Adam and Sakena have said, need sleep, sleep deprived. You work with little tiny tots with kids, with teens, with adults as well, and you've just had that sleep retreat, what's the best way of getting in touch with you if anyone needs a bit of extra help with their little one or indeed their own good night's sleep? Finally, I'd like to say, you can see how excited I get about sleep. <laughs> I truly, truly think it is is the best free therapy that any of us can ever have, ever. So on Instagram is probably best. Nurture to sleep, number two, is the best place to get hold of us. If you want that, you can just set, you can send me three Zs or the word sleep to 4001. I'd be happy to send you the link. Thank you so, so much. I'm going to go make myself a, a sleepy girl mocktail tonight if I can track down some tart sherry juice. Uh, it's always an absolute pleasure, Julie Malden. Thank oh, you so, so it. much. Thank you. A bit of a trigger warning. We are talking about infertility and fertility um, on the show this afternoon, especially how it relates to friendship. Um, I know it's going to be hugely helpful to an awful lot of people listening today, but just wanted to give you a heads up if it is something you might find upsetting.
We are going to be joined by clinical psychologist Dr. Thiraya from the Human Relations Institute and Clinic in a few minutes to help us navigate this topic. But first of all, hearing from Cassie Destino, she is the founder of IVF Support UAE. She works as a fertility doula. She does have two children now, but actually getting to this point has caused issues with friendships in the past. Cassie, how are you? Hey, Helen, I'm great. Thank you for being with us and thank you as ever for your, well, the work you do around helping families on that. And I, I, I know how it sounds, that fertility journey, but I find it really hard to kind of find another way of putting it because it, it is such yeah. a journey for so many people. Um, I wanted to ask you both from personal experience and obviously from the community that you have built and support here in the UAE who are looking to start a family. How common is it for friendships to fall apart when one or both women in that friendship is trying to conceive? Well, you know, hopefully it's not that common that the friendship falls apart, but it can certainly be a challenge when someone is really struggling and if it's certainly if it feels like their friends aren't struggling, uh, just that sense of injustice can be so profound for so many women and it's just not something that we are really taught to talk about and to, you know, to be that sensitive about. So uh, it is not uncommon for there to be some friction, but I do hope it's uncommon that the friendships actually end up failing. Mm-hmm. I, if you wouldn't mind, you know, telling us a little bit about how it, this has happened in, in your life to, yeah. to some extent. Yeah. I mean, when I was, when, when my husband and I first started to kind of twig that it might be a little bit more difficult for us to get pregnant. Uh, my my really good friend, this is this is back in California before I moved here. She said to me, you know, I think I'll get pregnant in June, and that kind of works out with my plans for next year. And then she just did, oh, gosh. <laughs> and, and, and it was just the easiest thing in the world. And we ended up telling them, look, you guys, you need to know we're starting this process. We're struggling a bit. And uh, it did cause a little bit of trouble with us. Uh, she she ended up kind of saying to me, look, I feel like I can't talk about this joyful thing that's happening to me because I don't want to upset you. And so, you know, maybe it's better if we just kind of don't hang out for a while. And, you know, I said, no, <laughs> I, I, I don't find that acceptable. I wanted you to know I am obviously very happy for you, mm-hmm. but I was really grateful that she did come to me with that instead of just saying, you know what, I'm just not going to call her for a while mm-hmm. or I'm not going to respond to her text that she kind of came to me. And I think that that's not so common. And a lot of people do end up drifting away from their friends because they don't want to make them feel guilty that they've gotten pregnant when their friend is struggling. Mm-hmm. I think often it comes from a, from a place of good intentions. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hurt your feelings. But I think in the end, it does cause more hurt feelings than if you can have an an open conversation about it. Now, one of the kind of many powerful things that you have created with IVF Support UAE is this group. And I was going to say women, but it's really couples and and families who are on this road together, you know, who can speak to each other with, you know, true empathy and understanding of what they're going through. But if you're outside of that, and I'm speaking to people who perhaps have you know, never had any fertility problems, such as, you know, your, your friend back in California, who want to support a friend who's going mm. through IVF. Are there any things to say to not say um, based yeah. on your own experience or things that can be particularly upsetting for someone who is really finding it hard to um, to have that much long for family? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important that we say to people, you know, I understand that you are, that this is something that's happening for you. And to just acknowledge, instead of pretending it's not happening, I think that the instinct a lot of people have is just to kind of ignore it. But if you can say to somebody, you know, look, I can see that you're struggling and I just want you to know that I'm here for you how you need me to be. If you want to talk to me about it, we can talk about it. If you don't want to talk about it, we don't have to. But I am acknowledging that I can, that I am aware of it, mm-hmm. um, I think is a really positive thing to say. And then that lets the person with the infertility journey decide how they want to approach it. Uh, I think that saying, giving anybody advice on how to get pregnant is generally not helpful. If you are struggling with infertility, you've done your research, you know what it takes to get pregnant. And having somebody without that knowledge say, oh, just relax and it'll happen. Or, <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, we trust me, we've, we've thought about all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I always say is, you know, there, there's a thing that comes up a lot that people don't want to hear at least, you know, this is also maybe kind of getting into if someone has had you know, miscarriages yeah. or saying, at least you can get, pre- at least you're only 32. Mm-hmm. At least you, you know, you have the money for IVF or whatever. At least, whatever comes after at least is almost never helpful. Cassie Disney, I wanted to ask you about the other side. You know, what if you are struggling to get pregnant, um, you know, you have gone down the route of IVF and, as you say, are facing some of the emotional and financial turmoil that, that often goes hand in hand with it. And you start to see bumps everywhere. You know, your, your, you know, yeah. your friends are, are getting, getting pregnant, you know, drop of a hat. Um, any words of comfort or advice there when it's just not happening for you yet? You know, luckily we live in a country with really extraordinary fertility care. There is some of the best in the world available to us here. Uh, So I always advocate that people go seek medical help if they are trying to get pregnant and it's not working for them, and to know that they cannot be in a better market than here in the UAE in terms of Uh, specialties and hospitals and clinics and people who know what they're doing and people who want very much to help you. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can take a lot of comfort in that. And then if I had a piece of advice, it's to decide what you're going to say. People will ask you, you know, you guys have been married for a couple years now. When are you having a baby? Or you're 35. You guys don't want to have a baby. To have a ready answer for that I think is really helpful to get on the same page as your partner so that if it does come up at a a dinner party, you both kind of say the same thing. You can shut it down if you want to. You guys kind of, you you don't ever get caught out of how am I going to answer this. Just decide how you want to answer it and just kind of stick with that. Cassie, thank you so much for your insights on this topic. But as I said, for everything you do for, for couples around the UAE, if anyone is struggling, suffering, um, looking at their options when it comes to IVF or assisted fertility, um, what's the best way of getting in touch with you in that community, which we should say is is really well protected in terms of privacy as well? Indeed, yes. We do have a very robust Facebook group that you can find. That's, that one's women only. 
Uh, and that is just IVF Support UAE on Facebook. There's also a website with lots of information, lots of clinic information uh, that obviously anyone can look at. And that's IVFSupportUAE.com. Thank you so much, Kastisana. Wish you a wonderful afternoon ahead. Um, and thank you again for your insights on this topic. And we're going to be speaking to clinical psychologist Dr. Thraya next. Just hearing there from Cassie Destino from IVF Support UAE. And we're joined now by Dr. Thraya, clinical psychologist at the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. And we're talking about some of the big challenges that female friendships in particular can face. And it's at that life stage where someone wants to start a family and maybe might find it very easy and a friend in that group might be having a very difficult time. It's a very, very challenging um, experiences we heard from Cassie and her, her own um, her own experiences back in the states. Dr. Thraya, lovely to have you with us to offer up um, a psychologist's take on this, and of course answer the questions coming in on the text line. How are you? I'm well, Helen. How are you doing? I'm really well, thank you. Really, really well. Um, it's a it's a really emotional topic, I think, for an awful lot of women. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was interesting to hear from Cassie there about both sides. You know, about being being that person who is so desperately looking to start a family and getting all the baby shower invitations and, you know, that that pain. Um, and then also the flip side, which is this idea of maybe not guilt, but perhaps perceived guilt that, you know, I got pregnant with no problems and I'm surrounded by friends who are just desperately, desperately trying. And I, I wondered if we could start with the people who are looking to start a family, you know, people who are undergoing that fertility journey. How can you communicate your needs, your challenges, your boundaries to friends um, in, in a way that, you know, is protecting you, but also protecting your friendship? You said my favorite B word, Helen. I know. Yes, the boundaries. I heard it. <laughs> the reality is it's it's so complex because, you know, when you get married, everybody will all of a sudden assumes that you get married and you want to have kids or you should have kids automatically after you get married. Right. And so people start to get either anxious or excited or kind of expecting that you're going to, um, you know, go down that path. And so Mm -hmm. they start asking some intrusive questions, to be honest. But the reality is, is that, you know, it, it depends on the culture that you come from. Sometimes some cultures, that's the expectation. And so it's very natural. So it's not intrusive at all. And that can put a lot of pressure on the families that are or the the couple that are actually trying to have children. And it can feel not only pressurizing, but it can also feel like they're disappointing. So they feel a sense of there's something that we're doing that's wrong or there's something that's not happening or and they feel a sense of shame as well or maybe even a sense of embarrassment Mm -hmm. that this is not necessarily going in the quote unquote socially acceptable or socially expected way to go when it comes to building a family. So we're actually adding so much stress onto individuals that are, you know, having difficulty having children or even those that are not looking to have children so quickly within the marriage, right? Yeah, I think that's such a, that's such a good point in terms of the pressure that's that's put on because I actually really want to do a show on on dinks on the double income, no kids, and a new child 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 free by choice, and mm-hmm. the, my my new favorite word the dinkwads, which is double income, no <laughs> kids with a dog, <laughs> um, because for some people it is absolutely this idea of we're really happy, the two of us, and, you know, please don't question us. And 
please stop asking, please. But for others, it's this idea of we desperately do want a mm-hmm. baby and we're having to explain ourselves endlessly about why it's not happening or why it hasn't happened yet. Um, what about maintaining that balance between sharing a fertility journey with friends and family, but also maintaining some privacy? Because this is always one of really, really difficult questions that a lot of um, you know very early stage pregnancies is when do you tell people? And it's such a personal choice. Um, mm-hmm. So that idea of what do you owe people? You know, how much truth do you owe them? How much vulnerability do you owe them? And I'm, I'm, I know your answer is going to be, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, my answer is going to be different. Oh, <laughs> tell me more. <laughs> actually, I was going to say, you don't actually owe anyone anything. However, it is very, um, who, who you're, you are sharing this information with um, will determine how much you want to share. So for instance, if it was with your parents, you may feel a sense of, okay, I need to at least explain to them a little bit more mm-hmm. versus if it's a friend, a random person in your life, you know, those kinds of things, you may not necessarily want to, or feel the need to share more than is necessary. Mm-hmm. I think, I think it is, it's so, so personal. Um, you know, my kind of philosophy, you know, in early pregnancy was, you know, who would I turn to? if I was to lose this mm-hmm. baby, like who's, you know, whose support would I need? And equally, if it's, you know, going, you know, starting IVF, whose who's support do I need? Um, you know, as I face some of the difficulties around this, you know, about who do I want to share that share this with? Um, so a little bit of it depends, but you're right. Nobody owes anybody anything. Um, <laughs> I tried to avoid it. I, <laughs> thank, thank you. Um, Dr. Thurai is with us. I want to talk next about dealing with those feelings of isolation, of alienation from friends that might not understand what you're going through and the role, of course, of support groups such as IVF Support UAE we were talking to earlier. Crucially, how can you say thanks but no thanks, the unsolicited advice? And we've got messages coming in on this as well. One asking, one of my friends has been trying to conceive for nearly a year. I've tested positive in the last week with our second baby, um, I'm due to catch up with her in a few weeks. I don't know how to approach this with her. Should I text her in advance or broach it in person? Um, I'm, there's going to be no right or wrong in this, but I think the emotional intelligence that Dr. Thurai can offer across this and any subject is going to be really, really useful. Talking friendships today, and we kind of think about you know friendships being... Tri- you know, tricky and problematic in, you know, in teens where there's all sorts of explosive issues. But actually, friendship problems can somehow just get sometimes more difficult, more serious as the issues in our lives become bigger and more serious, including fertility or in particular infertility. We heard earlier from Cassie Destino of IVF Support UAE talking about, you know, friendships having fractures when one person is trying to conceive and on that journey of perhaps IVF and the finances and the the emotions and seemingly everyone around them including their friends is getting pregnant no problems and then on the flip side sometimes the guilt that someone can experience when they are pregnant and maybe they're their nearest and dearest are having a very very difficult time so if this is something you're struggling with you want to share experiences on please do feel free to reach out and you don't put your name on if you'd rather not Joining us from the Human Relations Institute and Clinic is Dr. Thuraya. Um The unsolicited advice piece. 
Cassie touched on it earlier, which was, you know, oh, if you're looking to get pregnant, you should just relax. Or, you know, the kind of, oh, my friend's cousin, you know, had this herb and, you know, had triplets. Um, any advice for shutting down perhaps an often well-meaning advice when, quite frankly, it's the last thing you want to hear? I like to focus on a question, which is, what do you need from me right now? And I really like that question because I think what it allows is the person to determine what it is that they're asking for in that moment. So instead of, because, you know, the reality is, as you said, unsolicited unsolicited or not, most people will jump to the advice giving because they're feeling a sense of anxiety and they don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And so what they do is automatically jump in and say, you know, you should try this and you should try that because they're trying to, you know, care about the person and show, you know, however, instead of that, we can channel that anxiety, that nervousness, and we can just ask the question, what would you need from me right now? Do you need some help with something? Do you want me to just listen? What do you need from me? And I think that is so appropriate because it allows the person the the freedom, but also the sense of feeling a bit in control Mm -hmm. of what's going on right now, especially for people who are trying really hard to have a family. When they're not able to, they feel a sense of helplessness. So allowing them to feel that sense of control can can be very empowering for them. Mm -hmm. I think, I know we're not talking about marriage this afternoon, but I think that's also a very useful phrase in relationships. You know, this idea of you know, if one partner's upset or struggling with something, the other one rather than as is, and I'm not gendering this, but those do, I will say that men often and well-meaningly want to try and fix things is what do you need from me right now? Do you want me to listen? Do you want to rant? Or are you looking for solutions? I do think about 99% of arguments could be avoided. <laughs> oh, absolutely. With, with that sentence. Um, I wanted to ask you, Dr. Thryer, about if someone is feeling isolated, feeling alienated from friends who might not fully understand the emotional toll of fertility challenges. Maybe you are, and it's breaking your heart, the last one to have a baby out of your friendship group. You know, what advice would you give to that person and perhaps maybe speak to the role of support groups, online communities in that dynamic as well? Well, I think when we talk about online communities or support groups, I think one thing to be very careful of is Um, be aware of how you're experiencing the support group and the online group. Because I have had some women that have come and and spoken to me about their journey, their IVF journey, um, and have felt that support groups were not helpful. And not because they they thought that people were, you know, ill-intended or anything like that, but because sometimes they felt like there was a lot of um, negativity, a lot of discussion about around negative uh, scenarios, which kept triggering my particular clients. So I think before we say support groups and online groups are beneficial to everybody, I think it's very important for you to to be aware of how it affects you. And if you feel that it's it's really helping you, then continue. But if you feel like there's something that's that's not sitting right with you, then maybe take a step back and kind of evaluate whether or not this is the right forum mm-hmm. for you or do you prefer something a little bit more one-to-one, mm-hmm. okay? So th- that's that's what I would say about support groups. When it comes to friends, though, I think it's really important, as we said before, is is talking about these expectations, like sharing with your friends what you would need from them. Because the reality is, is that this is such a touchy subject. And the reason why it's touchy is not because it should be touchy, but because we kind of, 
we tiptoe around it. We try, we make it, you know, feel like there's something wrong if you're not having children. Oh my God. And we, then we dramatize it and we make it such a catastrophe. And so we're assigning so much shame and embarrassment to a topic that's very natural. So I think what we need to do is normalize and, and, and naturalize these types of conversations amongst friends in general, but also Make sure that you as an individual, if you're going through something like this and you don't feel like you're getting what you're looking for from your friends, focus on the friend that you think can be that person for you and 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 explain that to them. Tell them, you know, I'm feeling a bit lonely. It's very difficult for me to, to, talk, to talk about this for many different reasons. Be vulnerable. Involve your friends in a, in a way where you communicate your expectations and communicate when you get hurt, even if they are they are well intended and and that is a big um part of it because i think a lot of people shy away from discussing this topic with their friends because they're so worried about hurting them mm-hmm. and they're so worried about you know what you know if i say something would i trigger them and so on and so forth so the more open we are with individuals the more vulnerable we are with our friends the ones that we f- we feel comfortable and safe with then the more likely we are to have these types of conversations and safe spaces so that we can open up and discuss these things that that are very, very dear to our heart. Thank you, Thraya. Um, We've had a couple of messages that I would um, just like to come to. And I I guess we should just reiterate that your role is not to say you should do this. That's not what a psychologist does. Mm -hmm. But it's certainly perhaps a way of encouraging some question asking. One message here, no name, saying, do we tell the kids they are IVF. And, and again, I have absolutely no expectations for you to go, yes, you absolutely should. Or, um, oh, I think that's a terrible idea. But how can someone come to their own conclusion about a topic such as that, Thraya? Well, I think it, it's a tricky one. You're right, because um, it's kind of a similar conversation to... Um, uh, you know, how much information do you share with your children about the process of, of having, <laughs> having them? Mm-hmm. But I think in this case, what I would say is try to think of the reason behind sharing that information with them. Wh- how does it serve the child for them to know this piece of information? If you feel that it wouldn't necessarily do them any good to have that information, then you might want to kind of think of and reflect on what is the purpose for you to have to share that with them. So it's, it's good to kind of reflect on the reasons behind that being something that you're even thinking of to start with, and then consider the reasons uh, or the consequences on the child if they knew. You're so wise, Dr. Thrower. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. So sweet. No, but I also think it's really important to acknowledge that while some friendships are amazing and life-giving and so so important that there is a real role to be able to speak to someone with who's got no agenda who's got no kind of you know skin in the game when you are going through something like IVF for you to go there and just say what you want and not worry about offending anybody or upsetting anybody or being offensive just to be able to say what you need to say and I think that's where you know you as a clinical psychologist and, and people that you work with can can really be so so valuable um so dr thryer thank you for your time um i really do appreciate it and we'll talk to you soon i hope thank you helen thank you (laughs) 
And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.